this is Media Files, a podcast on major themes and issues in the media. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today we meet Bastian Obermeyer, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who led the Panama Papers investigation into global tax evasion and money laundering. It was the biggest ever collaboration for investigative journalism, involving 400 journalists in 80 countries who collectively produced 6,000 stories in 100 different media outlets. Bastian Obermeyer is the deputy editor for investigations at the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper in Munich and was the person who received the original email from the anonymous source known as John Doe. Bastian recently joined the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, courtesy of the McGeorge Fellowship. He worked with master's students on their investigative journalism projects and while he was here, recorded this discussion with me for Media Files. So you thought you were here to hear about the Panama Papers, but actually I want to start by talking about a thing called Prometheus. <laughs> Bastian, what is Prometheus? That was the name that we had given the project that we later called Panama Papers. It's a name chosen by an IT guy from the ICHA, the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists, who did all the work in the middle of 400 colleagues around the world that we worked with. So they had the worst job because they had to coordinate 400 journalists with big egos and special needs. And he named it because he had an interest in Star Trek and apparently Prometheus is relevant in Star Trek. Yeah, I think it's one of the planes, you say planes? I'm absolutely not into Star Trek, but I worked on four projects, I think, that have been named in the phase when they weren't public yet after plane from Star Trek. The next one was Athena. Might also someone here with more knowledge? <laughs> no. So later <laughs> we decided not to brand our investigations as Prometheus for very obvious reasons. And we had a big fight. And I never liked the name Panama Papers. It uh, was to me not only about Panama. So I feel it's not fair because many companies have been founded in the British Virgin Islands. But British Virgin Islands papers has n- no ring to it. Mossack Fonseca, the law firm that we received all the data from the Panama Papers from, they lost the data somehow. They were operating from Panama, so there was, a, there was enough reason to name it Panama Papers. Now, I, I think it was an Australian who ended up naming it Panama Papers. This is Gerald Ryle. Yeah, actually, I don't think he's an Australian. I don't want to... <laughs> actually. He's an Irish, but he left Ireland. We're claiming him as ours. For obvious reasons, now since I'm now here the fourth week, fifth week, um, I can understand why he left Ireland to come to Australia. Um, So yeah, he named it Panama Papers and we wanted to name it Global Leaks, I think, which is a terrible, terrible name and I'm very happy that we lost that fight. Well, we'll possibly come back to Gerald Rowell and the role of the ICIJ, which he leads in a moment. Take me to that moment when you're flying into Panama. You've decided to visit the country. I didn't. Frederick. Ah, okay. Yeah, so in the book. Colleague. That's a little. <laughs> okay, in the book here, I'm, I'm working on this book, The Panama Papers, a brilliant read, and it talks about us having gone in. So I assumed it was you. Frederick goes into Panama. Yeah, and I told him not to go. But um, so what we did when we were getting closer to publication date, we decided that one of us has to go to Panama and the other one has to survive. 
And <laughs> I had two kids. So I thought, and I was his boss. <laughs> so I thought, you go. And no, he can speak Spanish, which is a huge help if you're going to Panama. And I don't. So uh, um, he volunteered. And uh, they didn't know about all that yet. We thought so, at least. So um, he, didn't, he didn't fly there and said, look, we've got this massive leak from your country that we're going to name Panama Papers uh, because we want to destroy all the reputation that you got left here. Um, but he just went there and he tried to stay underneath the radar and talk to people. And it was fantastic because we then, when we wrote the pieces, we always could uh, put in, you know, just two or three sentences so our readers so we've actually been there, we've, we've talked to people there. He tried to find one of the straw women that worked for most This is Letitia Montoya. Yeah, who the queen I'm, of offshore. I'm absolutely fascinated by this woman. She, her name appears in the Panama Papers 25,000 times. <laughs> and she lives in the outskirts of Panama City. And Frederick went to visit her. What happened? So. He didn't meet her, but he was quite positive that he was at the right place. And I think, I haven't been there, so I think as much as I remember from the book, <laughs> that the, the, there, there was a man um, who, couldn't, who could barely speak English, and he, who said he's not there, she's not there, and she can't be reached really good. And then they, they tried to call her. That's right. And that's good, if that's right. And the, the man was, in fact, her husband. Oh, great. <laughs> 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 uh, and, and she said on the phone that she wouldn't really talk. That's uh, right. She yeah. rang back later. And she then bagged her husband to Frederick and saying, what an idiot, giving away my <laughs> phone number. But the, the really fascinating thing about Letitia Montoya is that she is one of these straw people. She's put up as the front for a company and in fact, talking about her really is the key to understanding these shell companies through which all of these large companies and dubious individuals around the world are hiding their money. So how does that work? So she doesn't speak English. So she is just, she was the director of, um, we estimated around 30,000 companies because some of the companies that she was director of weren't even named in the Panama Papers. So she was leading 30,000 companies which is an extraordinary thing to do. And she doesn't know what's going on in any single one of them. And she doesn't get paid per company, sadly. Uh, she got just um, $500 a month. So she wasn't the one who got rich, but the people who had hired her, because they, they got money for every time they wrote her name in as the director of a company. She couldn't really travel. I mean, she didn't have the money for, but she would have, have gotten arrested in nearly every country in the world because she was on all those sanctions lists. Because the people used the company that she was fronting to smuggle arms to Libya or whatever. So that then when the authorities found out who was the owner of the ship, Letizia Montoya, it was her company, she was the director. So her name got on the sanctions list which is completely ridiculous because she didn't do anything, she didn't know anything, and she never travels. But her name was on it and the real owners could stay in the dark. And that's been her role and the role of many others, to hide the real owners of a, any given offshore company 
while she is the only public name, she and maybe another director. So when you go to the Panamanian company register, which is public, and look up a company, and you think, ah, now I'm going to know who is the owner, you're going to find one of those poor guys that, that are the, the, the sham directors, the fake directors, however you want to call them. And the, the insult, as you alluded to, is that Mossack Fonseca, the Panamanian law firm that's at the centre of your investigation, Mossfon as it's also known, doesn't even treat her with sufficient dignity to pay her what a, a front person would normally be paid. If she was being paid at the actual rate she should be for fronting all of these companies, she would be a multi-millionaire. But they're keeping her in poverty in the process. Yes, because she is the least powerful person in this whole offshore game. You know, police and prosecutors around the world, they didn't really know Jürgen Mossack and Ramon Fonseca, the owners of the company, but everyone knew Leticia Montoya because she was fronting so many companies. Um, we, we, we had a big bribery case in Germany from Siemens, worldwide operating company, and even they used the company that Leticia Montoya was fronting. And it's just, you know, for, for the people who want to hide their traces, she's just, just one name, just, just any given name that's, that's on there. The thing is that I had really difficulties in the beginning to believe that how would you trust her? I mean, she's running your company, you don't even know her. She could go and she could take your money from your bank account in Switzerland and could buy a Ferrari. She's the CEO, she can make the decisions. Um, so you have to really trust Mossack Fonseca that they are only choosing people who they really got power on. In the, the book you tell the story about how all of these people at Mossack Fonseca have at their disposal, there are already in the papers pre-signed letters that can be pulled out and used at any moment <coughs> so that if, for example, that woman or another front person decides to go rogue, they can be shut down very quickly. Yeah. Letters of resignation that were already signed. Um, so you only had to fill in a date and you could backdate it. Many people did backdating documents offshore. That's a, that's a huge help if you want to close down your company. You want to seem that you have sold it already when you're not, when you didn't, uh, um, or when you had a better share. So that uh, means that you can sell your company just by handing over a piece of paper. If that's a bearer share, the, the very person who's got this, this piece of paper in, in their hands is the owner of a company. And so if, if, if you want to buy drugs from me, let's just assume that for a moment, um, then we can say, okay, this company is owning all the trucks. This company is probably owning a ship with a lot of trucks on it, you give me money and I just give you the paper and now it's yours and, uh, and no one can say it's, it's mine because you got this piece of paper. And that's very easy for all kinds of crime because there's no paper trail. It's just this thing, that's all. Despite international rules that say that banks and law firms dealing with these sorts of clients need to know who the real owner is of the companies, this is a kind of cornerstone of international financial law, and yet this is honoured in the breach everywhere. It's almost routine that these companies do not have a clue who the real owners of the companies are that they're channelling all this money for. Well, it has changed. We are, so we, we have to be a little honest and a little fair with them. So those rules were slowly coming and Panama ignored them like most of those 
tax haven state in the beginning. Um, so when we're looking at the documents of Mossack Fonseca's from, from the 80s, for example, they have nearly no documentation about real owners there. It's just some, some guy is buying an offshore company, Anonymous, Red Blue Limited, whatever, and they hand it over, they take the money, they fill in the, the fake directors, and that's it. There's no more paperwork to it. It was really easy to get a Panamanian company back then. Now it's, it's horror. Now you have to fill in all kinds of documents and you have to explain that uh, you're not a US citizen because they are all afraid of the USA. And, and you have to do all kinds of know your customer stuff that no one wants to do. And um, so some of the banks and some of the, those offshore providers were really meticulous with those things already 15 years ago or even earlier. Mossack Fonseca just didn't care. Yeah, you, you quote a number in, Seychelles, in the Seychelles where Mossfon had 14,086 companies on its books and it knew who the real owner was in just 204 of those cases. So there are well over 13,000 companies it just doesn't know who owns. Right. In one jurisdiction. And that, that's not a good quote. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. The funny thing is that when we published the Panama Papers, that was just in the face when Mossack Fonseca realized how bad they were. So they started this, this internal project to, to learn about their clients, actually. So they started writing email back and forth uh, and doing those statistics to see how bad they really were. And they, we, we read emails when they said, it's terrible, I didn't even know how bad we, we are. And then we published, and about one and a half year later, we again got a hold of, uh, of data from Mossack Fonseca. Again, I don't even remember how much, but uh, probably 150 gigabytes or something like that. And so after we had published, and they were still doing this project to find out who their clients were. But at that time, we had published, everyone knew Mossack Fonseca and the Panel Papers. And when they were writing emails to their customers to say, hey, here's Mossack Fonseca, um, you're our client or, or your customer from, from the bank, client's contacts. And they said, so we, we now want to know who is our, who is the real owner. We want to know the address. We want to know, uh, um, we want to see uh, some copy of a, of a passport. We want to know where the money came from, for what it is used, and all those. And the banks only got by, fuck off. I mean, you just lost all our data to journalists. And now you're coming and said, we, sh we shall give you our most private data from our clients because you're going to really safeguard them, really? And so, yeah, then they just stopped business. And the reportage that came out of the Panama Papers is just stunning in so many levels. But I'm going back to that point where you're working up the data, getting it ready for publication. And you're looking for different kinds of stories. And one of the sorts of stories you are necessarily looking for in Munich as you're writing it up is local angles. And you have lots of them, including <coughs> the fact that Jürgen Mossack, one of the two owners of Mosfon, is a German. He's the son of a Waffen-SS Nazi 
who became a CIA, was recruited by the CIA and in, ends up in the States and then somehow gets to Panama. I mean, what a powerful local angle this is. Yes, and that, that was very helpful because in the beginning, in the first weeks actually, uh, um, when, when I started to receive the first documents, I was um, really intrigued by um, those documents. But after like three or four weeks, we sat down and we didn't have just one really good story from Germany. So we had great stories, you know, about politicians from France, from Pakistan. We had the Prime Minister from Iceland, the best friend of Vladimir Putin. But we didn't have a really good story from, from our own country. So, um, and then we said, okay, we're going to make Jürgen Mossack our story. Because Jürgen Mossack is actually from Bavaria. And we got so lucky, we were so happy, when we found out that his father was a Nazi and then turned CIA. I mean, what can you wish for? That, uh, <laughs> that, that's, uh, sadly, I don't know how the, his mother was looking like, but <laughs> this would be maybe even more. The, but, but it was fantastic. So we were so, uh, and, and, and we still guessed that he came back to Germany in the 70s and we were asking our Bundesnachrichtendienst, our secret service agency about him um, because they must have had information about a former Nazi turned CIA agent. And they answered they can't give us any information um, for the security of the Bundesrepublik Deutschland, of national interest. So he must have worked in the end for the Germans even. So. Nazi, CIA, German Security Agency, fantastic guy. The, the journalist in me would absolutely love that <laughs> as well. Um, and it begs the question, what is he doing in the States and why has the States invited him in if he was an Waffen SS officer? But yeah. there are also other intriguing German angles. 20 German banks are yes. named. Are German banks more <laughs> unscrupulous than others? Or? Yes, of course. I, won't I will not defend them. They are just ridiculous, dirty. I mean, Deutsche Bank is, they had a big raid last November, actually, for the Panama Papers, last November. Uh, uh, and um, so we really tried in the beginning uh, to be patient with them. Um, and we met them and we asked them about, you know, offshore company and even Mossack Fonseca. And we really gave them a chance uh, to be honest with us. And they just claimed they hadn't opened a single offshore company in the last 15 years. And they were just lying in our faces. And then we said, okay, so that's what you want to go on the record with? And they said, yeah, of course, that's, it. that's what, what we have heard. So the spokesman, of course, didn't say it's the truth. It's, he said, so I spoke with our guys and they say that's the truth. And then we showed him the papers and, uh, well, then there was no answer anymore. And, but the, the Deutsche Bank is involved in any kind of trouble. Whenever you see, you know, something really dirty in the world, from Donald Trump to the Russians, uh, um, they'll have accounts at Deutsche Bank. So, you're very welcome. You saw up close a lot of work by public relations um, spin doctors. Did, did your opinion about public relations, well, what is your opinion about public relations? <laughs> did it change? <laughs> no. Um, what's really a pity is that they make so much money with our work, um, that's ridiculous. Whenever we do a story, 
they just they just open the the, the bags and the money's flying in uh, because they're managing the reputation. Of yeah, the they're managing the reputation of of their clients. And uh, I mean, what is my opinion on them? It's just they 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 are professional liars, in very very many cases. Of course, there are people who are doing a great job. They are who who are doing really good crisis control and. And that's, that's always the ones who say, okay, let's sit down with them, let's speak to them, let's explain them. I mean, if, if they have a little sympathy for you, <laughs> the story will get weaker. Or it's a wide range. It's from very unprofessional guys who try to smear us and to give stories to other papers you know, about us, um, to, to shillings in London who just write you know, a letter and explain you how much money you have to pay um, if you're still going to publish, and uh, that's when we, of course, get nervous. No one, n no one in Germany wants to wants to fight in court with Schillings London or, or with a law case in in the states or wherever. And our biggest problem was when <coughs> when when we did the Panama Papers, we did something that um, no one had done before on this scale. And we didn't know what would expect us because we were not only writing our stories in German, but we also published many stories in English. And then we had given the documents to nearly 100 other media companies. So we didn't know would we be liable in, in any given countries for giving it away to someone who then did a story that might have, you know, an error in it, factual error, whatever, and harm the interest of someone, the business relation of someone, and might lead to them having a loss or whatever. Um, so might they sue us just for giving it to someone, not for, not for our reporting. We, we are, of course, we are in charge of our reporting. If we make a mistake, um, well, then they can sue us. Did you think of setting up a shell company? <laughs> <laughs> we did not, but um, yeah, we hired more lawyers, and, and, and the more lawyers, the, the worse it gets. That's sadly also true. Your source was giving you information out of MOSFON almost in real time, so you're seeing occasionally the results of putting the feelers out and interviewing people, and then the documentation coming back through MOSFON talking about the fact that this is happening. I mean, the data that you're getting it's so close to the information, it's so comprehensive. The source is just, it's, you know, you couldn't get a better source. It, they're right on it, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was um, a little frightening even. Um, uh, and, but we got so addicted that, that we didn't realize it anymore in the end. So we had cases that we worked on, some of them we never wrote about because they, we couldn't make it hard in the end, but we, we had cases where we where we saw, for example, a lot of money going to this one company, but we didn't know who the real owner was. And so, whenever we received a new bunch of data from the source, we always um, looked through all that, of course, and and were searching the new data, and we always were looking: do we have new information to the stories that we're already working on? And uh, so we, we had uh, uh, um, those moments when we saw, 
oh, now they reached him finally, and now that they know who the, who the owner is. And there was an email going back, and finally, after six months working there, our colleagues at Mossack Fonseca finally had the information that we so desperately were seeking for. And they were friendly enough to send it per email. So we, we got it. Uh, and that was, of course, fantastic. Or we, we had a company that we thought had a strange ring somehow. And it, it, was, it felt almost as we would be looking over their shoulders while they were typing and writing. And we found emails from the day before in the last batch of data sometimes. So you knew everything that Mossack Fonseca knew about its clients, but where a client didn't tell you, didn't tell Mossack Fonseca who they were, then you didn't know. Exactly. So um, worst case for us was any bank <coughs> who said we don't trust Mossack Fonseca, especially Swiss lawyers, which is a um, very special thing for itself, Swiss lawyers. I don't want to speak bad about lawyers, but Swiss lawyers are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> they have a special law in, in Switzerland, so if you're a regulated entity in the whole world, then you don't have to give the name to Mossack Fonseca. So Mossack Fonseca will then let you sign a document that you, as a regulated entity, are telling them, we know who the beneficial owner of this company is, that we bought from you, and whenever some authority comes to you from a state government for a hard crime like sanctions breaking, we will hand over the name in a second. Whenever you ask me, uh, because, and we can guarantee that because we are a regulated entity. And the Swiss lawyers, they are all regulated entities, but self-regulated entities. So this is the, the worst joke I've ever heard. So th th they don't have any regulation, but th they have to speak to another lawyer, one of their colleagues, you know, if there's any suspicion of wrongdoing. And then the one said, ah, oh, no, no, that's fine. And that was it. So I don't think it was a random decision by the best friend of Vladimir Putin to have a Swiss uh, law firm uh, handle his money. The best friend of Vladimir Putin is the cellist Rod Rugen, who has been responsible for some 500 million US dollars, I think going Two through. Billion. Oh, all God, all. Sorry, Two billion. Sorry, I underestimated. US dollars <laughs> were, were rooted through the five offshore companies that we had his name on. He's a modest cellist. He's a, mod <laughs> he's a modest cellist. Uh, um, and he heads companies worth two billion or that are with revenue yeah. of two billion. Maybe he's just honest. He told the New York Times three or four years ago before we published, he told them that he's not a businessman, that he doesn't own millions. We found billions. Maybe he thought, I, I never said I don't own billions. So, but then um, we thought this is a fantastic story. So the Swiss lawyer, even the Swiss lawyer made him sign documents. And one of the documents said, do you know any very important people or do you know any politically exposed persons like uh, ministers, members of parliament, or presidents of countries, for example. But it's enough if you are in the, in the local government of, I don't know, Apollo Bay. That's enough. Then you're a pep already. And then you need to uh, be looked at with more scrutiny. So he would have to tell if he would be friends with the mayor of Apollo Bay. But he didn't tell them that he's the best friend of the Russian president, which is kind of funny. 
when, when they were working with him, they were all the time complaining because they didn't get a hold of him to sign documents. So they made another person be the straw man for the straw man. Uh, because of course Roldugin, he had no clue what was going on in those companies. When, when, when our Russian colleague met him, he said, yes, I can remember those companies, they must be from right, right after Perestroika, I wanted to earn some money. And that was in the 80s. All the companies have been find, founded um, around about 2009 or 2010. So he didn't know anything about that. It wasn't his money, very clearly. And when Vladimir Putin was asked about him in a live television show in Russia, he explained very patiently that the money was used from his friend Roldugin to buy instruments for talented young Russian musicians. Um, so I'm really interested to see this huge barn that must be somewhere in Russia where the cellos worth two billion US dollars are stored. Um, but I'm still glad that he was so patient with us. See, Vladimir Putin is still the president. Yes. He couldn't land a blow, even on him with this sort of connection that he has to a very close friend and the channeling of this sort of money. And there are lots of other world leaders who are still in office. We'll get to the Prime Minister of Iceland in a second, but there are so many that got away with it, even after all of this investigative work. You had a file in the Panama Papers called Heads of State, where you found links to heads of state, and you got up, I think, into the 30s or 40s of links like that. Um, so we, when we started finding heads of states, we got so, so nervous and so happy and so, um, enthusiastic that we started to, to make notes on the wall. So we had a wall we can write on. So we said, what are we going to do? Are we only, only going to count the name of a person as direct customer of Mossack Fonseca? Or are we going to say, okay, so if you're Vladimir Putin, you'll never go to Mossack Fonseca to have your own offshore company. You will always send maybe your best friend, I don't know, Maybe your daughter, maybe your son, maybe your wife, maybe your neighbor, someone like this. And this is how it works in the whole world. All the dictators, they have their family, they are the ones with the bank account. Because not even the Swiss banks or the German banks are allowing a very important PEP, politically exposed person, to have a bank account with millions that they can't explain. So um, we said, no, no, we, we, we also counted when it's the wife or the son or the daughter in there, and we counted up to 72. So th there are so many important people in, and we have 13 heads of states who were in it by name as the direct clients. And that is the thing that I still can't believe, because this is only one law firm. This is only Mossack Fonseca. There are at least five law firms like Mossack Fonseca only in Panama with a similar size and similar dirty. Um, and, and there are many other countries in the world who are doing the same business, handing over offshore companies to rich guys, to, to some politicians from Africa and, and South America or whatever. Spare a thought for the investigative journalists in Iceland who have the dirt. They have the story about the Icelandic Prime Minister Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson and his involvement and his wife's involvement in a company called Wintress. It's enough to bring him down, throw him out of office. He has to sit on this story 
to meet your international embargo for a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> but if you gave it to him, I mean, you, you also have to count that in. Um, no, we, we were, I mean, we were sitting in the same boat. We, we knew about the best friend of Vladimir Putin for a year, and we were hoping that he doesn't die, because then, I mean, oh, a nice story. He is a fantastic guy, and he got that unbelievable patience. And we also have to say that three members of the cabinet from this government, from this prime minister, also had offshore companies with Mossack Fonseca. Which is a third of the cabinet of Iceland. Yeah, which is unbelievable. It's, and we always thought in Germany that Iceland is this, this wonderful, transparent country. You know, if they are not related to each other anyway, they like each other. They are open and when you vote it and you become a member of parliament, you have to tell everything that you own. But they just didn't, of course, <laughs> because why would they? It was secret. So he got the best stories from all our 400 guys and he had to be a little patient. That story broke just before it broke everywhere else, didn't it? Yeah, so what we did in the case of Iceland, we tried to be very, very, very careful. When Johannes Christiansen, the colleague there, he said if he would go and ask them by email, you have to go to them before you publish and you have to ask them, is it really true that you have been the owner of, of a Panamanian company called Vintris and that you got the bonds of three Icelandic banks who later got broke and so on. So I sent those emails to those people. Uh, the wife of the prime minister, she hit Facebook and she complained in a long post about how interests some journalists from Germany would be to attack her, her, her husband for a company that never was intended to be his because they had it together. So she said that was a mistake by the bank, of course. And he never should have been the owner, it was her company, and now they are attacking him, how mean. And we hadn't published yet and we got really nervous because we didn't know what to do. So this story went viral in Iceland, of course, and everyone was writing about it, but no one knew <laughs> what the story actually was, because there was only this strange Facebook post. So they called Johannes and said, hey, what's that story? Um, and they told us, you must be involved somehow. And he said, oh, I'm not speaking to you, I can't tell anything, we haven't published yet. And they called, they called us and said, look, tell us about your story in Iceland. And they called the ICA chain, everyone said, we can't tell you, but it's, it's a running investigation. We uh, wait until we publish. And that felt really strange, that felt really strange. But we, we couldn't do anything. And the same was true with the Russians, by the way. They also, the, the sp spokesman of Vladimir Putin, he gave a press conference. I think a week before we published, because we also had sent a lot of questions to Vladimir Putin. I mean, do you know about the 14 friends of you that we know have offshore companies? When you said four years ago that it's very unpatriotic to be the owner of offshore companies, because we all keep our money in Russia, which is, of course, what no one is doing who is rich in Russia. But uh, he said, though, publicly. So we asked all the questions and then his spokesman said that this is, uh, this is an attack of the CIA on Russia, on Vladimir Putin and his friends. And that's all it is. And the funny thing was then when we published and we also wrote about the Prime Minister of Iceland, of Pakistan and 5,000 stories from all over the world, it was of course ridiculous to assume that it, this whole thing would be an attack against Russia. China shut you down after you published? Were you expecting that? <laughs> yes. 
You um, exposed what you call the princelings in China. This is the people close to those most powerful. And um, you found widespread use of offshore companies amongst the Chinese elite. Yeah, so the nation with the most offshore company owners in the Panama Papers are Chinese. Yeah, I think you said there are eight offices in mainland China and one, <laughs> one in Hong Kong. Eight offices. <laughs> yeah, they made a lot of money in China. It's not the ordinary man there who owns an offshore company. It's, of course, people who maybe don't want to have their money in the reach of authorities, uh, just in case. And, and the Brinslings, this is, you know, this, it's uh, the relatives of the big politicians. And so if, if you're Brinsling, then the way, you know, our China guys explain it to me is you don't, you, you don't even go around and say, do you know who my uncle is? You just say, you mentioned that, by the way. And then all the doors are open because everyone is hoping that through you, he can reach your uncle. So whatever you want, if you want to buy real estate somewhere in China or, or wherever in Hong Kong, and then you'll go there and you'll say, it's too expensive for me, but I still can buy it. I think my uncle would love to be here sometime. And then you mention who your uncle is, and then you buy it for half of the price. And uh, so they are all really filthy rich, um, or very many of them. And are, you know, they are all their kids are studying in Harvard, in Yale, are driving Ferrari, Mercedes, Porsches, and many are studying abroad with another name. And of course, they need to have money to spend it abroad. So an offshore company is a really good way. Because the offshore company can then be the owner of the bank account in Switzerland or wherever. I don't mean to be mean to Switzerland, by the way. Well, I do. And then you got the bank account, you get a credit card from Deutsche Bank, and you can spend your money. That's a wonderful thing. No one knows where the money comes from. You mentioned the other day there are still lots of stories, Australian stories, hidden in the Panama Papers. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> Which is interesting, isn't it? They're still there, lurking and hidden. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it's probably not the biggest stories, to, to be honest. What he meant with, with that is there are so many leads. So if you don't have the manpower to follow all the leads that you find, but you, at a certain point, you decide to focus on the five most important stories for your country, then you leave aside everything else. And then you're publishing, and then it's like Panama Papers, the fourth week. And then you look down to those other stories that are not as big and good as the ones that you already published. And you ask yourself, am I really going to do those now? Or maybe jump to another story that's also big? And the answer of your boss will always be to the other stories. But it, it might be that one of those stories have the chance to become big. But because you didn't invest a lot of time, you won't know it. And we are still trying to do those stories in Germany, or at least to look at them. And just finally, but I don't think it's possible to do a talk like this about the Panama Papers without mentioning Daphne Galizia in Malta, who was killed in a uh, car bomb, had done a lot of the work in Malta on the Panama Papers, but a lot of other really impo important investigative work. I know you've talked about Daphne, but I wanted to ask you about something that you did in response, or that a lot of journalists did around the world in response. It's called the Daphne Project, and it's a product of a thing called Forbidden Stories that Bastian is very closely involved in. Tell us about that. When she got killed nearly two years ago, 
And I'm very close with her son, Matthew. He worked with us on the Panama Papers and on offshore leaks and Luxembourg leaks, so he's, he's a friend. And then I heard that she, she got killed and, and I got in contact with him and I asked him what I can do to help, which is ridiculous because they are in Malta, what can we do? And he said the world has to know, the public has to know about that. And we already had founded this, or, or Laurent Richard, my, my friend from France, had founded uh, the organization called Forbidden Stories with the aim that um, we, we didn't want to let the stories die when the journalists got killed or jailed. So the, the idea was that we would continue their work when, when they can't do it anymore. So that, that people would be afraid that, um, that they may be able to kill the messenger, but not the message. So what we did when, when Daphne was killed, we, we said, okay, this is now the moment we have to act. We had just founded the organization. And so we started the Daphne project. We involved The Guardian in the UK and Le Monde in France and, and Reuters and a couple of others, really good colleagues, um, also from Germany and Nordic countries. You said 45 journalists 45 from 15 journalists. countries. Yeah. And we went to Malta and we continued her work and we took over six or seven stories that she was working on. And one big story, of course, was her death. And uh, we didn't... Um, have the ambition to find out who, who killed her because we're not the police. That's, that's dangerous, that's not our work. We, we don't have the expertise in that. But we could do her work and through Matthew, her son, we got uh, the data that she was working with and we had the Panama Papers, of course, that she was working on. I mean, they arrested three guys who probably have planted the bomb, but there's still no trial in Malta. They, they are still waiting for the trial and still have no clue who ordered the murder. And when we published the Daphne project six months after her death, um, we found out that the police hadn't even spoken to the very politicians that she had attacked without uh, pause and, 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 and relentless. And, and also very strongly, uh, and she, she wasn't a very quiet person, so she was, she was like an attack dog. Um, but she was always right, most cases. The Prime Minister said that he, he will not rest until every stone is turned and uh, he knows who did this terrible thing. But then they didn't do anything um, for many months. And we even spoke to Europol, so Europol got involved and they said, Look, Malta is a tiny, tiny, tiny country. It's a tiny island. It's, it's really ridiculous that they would solve a murder like this. So Europol said, let us help you. In the beginning, they were very welcome. And then the Maltese police were starting not to share information anymore with them. So when we spoke off the record to Europol, they told us, look, what you get from us is go ahead. Do what you're doing, you're on the right track. There's a roadblock on the Maltese side. And that's still the same situation now. I suppose that's the power of journalism, but also the power of collaboration. And that is, of course, the common thread with the Panama Papers. Bastien, thank you very much. Thank Please thank much. Bastien Adler.
Bastian Obermeyer, the deputy editor of the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper in Munich. Bastian was the guest of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, and his trip was supported by the McGeorge Fellowship. Production today, Henning Goll and Andy Hazel. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Media Files. Music